Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with Tim Kreider. Mr. Kreider is a renowned cartoonist and writer whose critical essays have appeared in Film Quarterly, The Comics Journal, and Jump Cut, and have been anthologized in Depth of Field, Stanley Kubrick, Film, and the Uses of History. So tell me about your entry into, into Kubrick's films. Wow, that's a good question. Um, I, I suspect you're going to want to edit out quite a lot of this. Um, <laughs> I remember reading about 2001 in back when I was a kid. You couldn't just see anything you wanted on DVD or Netflix on command, and so there was a whole literature devoted to just telling you about cool films you might see someday if they happened to come on TV or to a local theater. And in some book called The Monsters Who Who, there was an entry on HAL 9000. <clears throat> and I uh, had in my mind, years before I got to see 2001, this version of it that was a much more conventional man versus crazy computer film. Yeah. And I remember staying up late to watch 2001 on TV when I was probably nine years old. Um, and as always happened whenever I did something like that, I was awake for maybe 11 minutes of it, <laughs> but was sort of obsessed with it to the extent that I wrote a sort of version of it myself and illustrated it. Um, and it was often the case that I, I became sort of obsessed with his movies years before I was actually allowed to see them. Um, I mean, I, I read the novel The Shining and read the Mad Magazine satire of The Shining before I ever got to see the actual R-rated Shining mm. instead of the um, hilariously bowdlerized TV version. Um <laughs> And I was a big fan of his in high school. I wrote a paper on Dr. Strangelove, I remember, um, and then went to Johns Hopkins where I took some film classes with Dr. Mark Crispin Miller. He definitely helped me understand those films in way more depth and detail. I mean, I, I think it wasn't until I got to college that I really understood uh, how to read things visually and really just the concept of subtext. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I think kind of a lot of brainy adolescent boys get obsessed with Stanley Kubrick. Um, and I, because I think, in a sense, he was a brainy adolescent boy his whole life. Mm -hmm. um, and his fascinations are um, common to them. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I'm not just referring to obvious things like his interest in gadgetry, but um, it's a very dark vision of the world and I think for a lot of really brainy adolescent kids in general there's an appeal to that because you get lied to about a lot of stuff growing up or let's be kinder about it and say sheltered from a lot of stuff mm. you know grown-ups don't want you to know about um, sex and death for most of your childhood and all that stuff comes as something of a rude surprise when you get clued into it and then any art that seems to sort of rip the facade off of things um, is very appealing to adolescents. And, and so lots of them 
develop this affinity for, for very dark, pessimistic, misanthropic art. Um, and, of course, in his case, he's also very funny. And mm-hmm. it's a very kind of, um, you know, Michael Hare said uh, he, that, that uh, Stanley Kubrick had a lot of modes and a lot of aspects, but he was a hipster all the time. And it's a very kind of hipsterish, uh, adolescent kind of humor. I mean, think of, you know, the film Lolita. I was just thinking today about that hotel manager named Mr. Swine. <laughs> you know, that's not subtle at all. <laughs> um, and a lot of the, the wordplay in Lolita is very heavy-handed and smutty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, I think that he, I don't know, there's there's certain artists who seem to, um, like him, uh, who else? David Foster Wallace, you know, the same sorts of people who like Kubrick like Wallace because it's so intellectually sophisticated, so funny, and so dark. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think it is about his work that that al- allows it to be so open to interpretation? Well, he wanted it to be that way. I mean, he wanted to... What artist was it? I think it was a sculptor who said, um, establish enigmas, not answers. Mm. I mean, he wanted to create <clears throat> mysteries. He wanted to leave things open to interpretation. I mean, he was his films were famously cryptic, and he, he was frequently called upon to um, explicate them, and he always resisted that. You know, his, his stock response to that was, think how much less interesting a painting the Mona Lisa would be if we knew why she was smiling. Mm-hmm. If Leonardo had told us, well, she's hiding a secret from her lover, mm-hmm. um, it would lose all of its mystery. Um, and, you know, I think he he loved the open-endedness of that because it engages the imagination of the viewer. Um, things are so much more powerful if you discover them for yourself than if an artist just comes out and tells them to you. Yes. Um he- he wasn't afraid of ambiguity uh, at all. And, no, you know, he, I mean, he he adored it and bent over backwards to preserve it. Uh, yeah. You know, I've often found, since writing that essay on Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, try this. Ask your friends who have seen it what they think happened in that film. <laughs> like, ask them, was Mandy murdered by that cabal, or did she just OD? I mean, is Ziegler telling the truth, or is it a cover story? <laughs> also, who put that mask on Bill's bed. Was it his wife? Or was it, you know, the, the nefarious agents of the orgy society? Um, everyone you ask considers those things, those answers to be self-evident. Everyone's like, oh, his wife put it there. Or, oh, I assume they killed her. Um, everyone figures that they're obvious, but nobody agrees. There's no consensus about those things. Yeah, yeah. And it's a kind of projection test of people's own um, assumptions and prejudices. Kind of Even like when... Sorry, go on. <clears throat> no, no. Even with, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And and a lot of the talk that has to do with eyes wide shut is, you know, on the surface, how much of it is a dream and how much is reality. And yeah, it's not at all clear. I mean, he. Um, yeah. Steven Spielberg said that in his conversations with Kubrick, he often expressed <clears throat> regret that he hadn't changed the form of narrative more than he had. Mm. And Spielberg was like, "Well, what about 2001? That was a." major um, revision of the way stories are told cinematically. He's like, yeah, only a little bit. He, he felt he had never gone far enough. And I think Eyes Wide Shut appears to be a sort of straightforward story, but isn't 
at all. We really don't know how much of that is real. You know, it's a little like trying to determine in shorts or in a novel whether, you know, when exactly you go from first-person limited to omniscient. You know, it's not clear what's real and what's in Bill Harford's imagination and what's a dream in that film. Mm. There's, with Eyes Wide Shut, there are some that call it his most optimistic movie, which optimism wasn't necessarily some, a characteristic that he was known for. Uh, no. And others others view it as as one of his most nihilistic. Uh, where do you fall there? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, if you'd asked the me of ten years ago who wrote that essay on Eyes Wide Shut, I would have said it was a very pessimistic film. Mm. That this is a um, shallow couple who are preoccupied with their own sex lives and have decided to go ahead and be complicit in the cover-up of a murder of some disposable woman. Um, um, Michelle Chion, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, theorizes that movie is told from the point of view of the Harford's unborn child. Um, and he doesn't write about it at length in this book. I'm not sure how well supported that is. And yet, Kubrick loved the idea of rebirth, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, Michael Hare called the last image of 2001 the most optimistic and transcendent image in all of world cinema. Um, and it is a beautiful ending. It gives me chills every time I see it. Um, and even in Full Metal Jacket, um, Leonard kills himself at the end of the first act, but he's kind of reincarnated in Animal Mother in the second half of the film. He reappears, this giant man-child. Um, he, he's very much attracted to the idea of immortality. You know, in one version of 2001, he wanted Frank Poole to come back from the dead. Um, and that ending of, of Eyes Wide Shut is very um, enigmatic. The way they speak to each other in that scene is almost in a kind of code. It's hard to tell what they're really talking about. Um, Bill invokes the word forever, and Alice says it scares her. Um, mm-hmm. So there may be something to that is all I'm saying. Uh, that theory sort of resonates. I mean, it seems on the face of it dodgy to me. I, I don't really see the evidence for it, and yet it, it would make sense in the context of Kubrick's other work. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. Um, He's not particularly optimistic about human nature. I, I think he would argue he was realistic mm-hmm. um, and that he eschewed the kind of sentimentality um, that uh, most other artists um, succumb to when they deal with human beings. Yeah. Uh, but he's an optimist in that he believed in art. <clears throat> you know, I mean, he believed in the power of uh, his chosen medium. And, he believed in you know, beauty above all else. I mean, Eyes Wide Shut is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It, it strikes me all over again every time I see it. Oh, um, it's hypnotic. Human beings are ugly. Uh, art is beautiful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With Eyes, well, with all of his films, he he definitely seemed to have a distrust of power. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, you see it throughout his work. How, how does that? Um, articulate itself in, in Eyes Wide Shut for you? Well, you know, I just rewatched Eyes Wide Shut last night, and I was thinking about that very thing, um, that party at Ziegler's house and the orgy at, at Somerton. Both those settings, those kind of vast, gleaming, ornate, cold, dead spaces, 
um, reminded me of several other settings in his films, like the Overlook Hotel <clears throat> and the interiors in Barry Lyndon, like Lyndon Hall, and uh, the Chateau of General Renaud, uh, Moreau in uh, Paths of Glory. And a lot of these are specifically 18th century interiors. Oh, and also that weird um, zoo or whatever it is at the end of 2001, um, mm -hmm. you know, that 18th century hotel room that he finds himself in. Um, you know, as I said, these spaces are all elegant but cold and arid. Um, and it has to do, I think, with what we were talking about, that inextricability of civilization from its most bestial impulses. Um, and, you know, the 18th century is the era of the Enlightenment, uh, when reason was going to enable us to put all that behind us. But, of course, it led to the... Um, gargantuan atrocities of the 20th century. Uh, you know, the, the rational, um, sorry, how to put it, I mean, just the, the, the rationalist slaughterhouses of, of the Holocaust and uh, the killings of the two world wars. Yeah. Um, I think he sees all those things as, you know, inextricable from one another. I was just watching that, that party scene at <clears throat> Victor Ziegler's um, that weird, diffuse light that makes everyone look sort of ghostly. And it reminded me, actually, of two other films uh, in which there are these uh, these dancing ghosts of the damned. Uh, the Devil and Daniel Webster, which I just saw on Thanksgiving Day this year for the first time, and also Carnival of Souls, um, mm. an old independent horror film, yeah. uh, where there are these ghosts doing a dance of death. And he likes very much that combination of um, surface elegance and deep corruption and depravity and evil. Yeah, and there there seems to be a, an unreality to it. it, it and uh, people talk with eyes wide shut about uh, it doesn't look like New York, and it, necessarily. I mean, it, it seems almost like, and this is when they bring up the dream-like quality of it. I mean, because movies have been shot in Vancouver and have been made to look exactly like New York, so yeah. it had to have been kind of an intentional uh, feeling that you get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. D did you notice that well, when you watched it again last night? Well, well, I mean, I think, frankly, part of that is the provincialism of New York critics who are used to so many films being shot in New York. And, you know, New Yorkers assume that New York is the center of the cosmos, and <laughs> it should look exactly <laughs> like New York. Nobody complains if a film is supposed to be set in Duluth and doesn't actually look like Duluth. <laughs> Who would know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I think he was fairly meticulous in his recreation of New York streets. He had a lot of photographs taken in New York streets. But also, no, they're not supposed to be naturalistic any more than the acting in his films is supposed to be what people actually act like. You know, one thing he said to Jack Nicholson once, uh, or perhaps repeatedly, was... Uh, yeah, it's real, but it's not interesting. Yeah. You know, he wanted interesting. And those sets and the lighting and the colors in Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, in their way, they're just as expressionistic as the more obviously expressionistic sets in a David Lynch film or, or even in Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. You know, they all are there to um, transmit uh, some ambient emotion or idea. I mean, even things like 
newspaper headlines and street signs and eyes wide shut all are, are giving off sly little signals. Yeah, and, and and when I when I think of the reviews of the film upon first release, which it's kind of standard with most Kubrick films, the, the reviews were pretty tepid and, and and damning. Yeah, which you think over time would make critics a little bit more guarded and second guess themselves. But yes, no, yes. Not. <laughs> yeah, and and as and it wasn't so much what they were seeing, but what they expected to see. Yeah. Um they weren't looking at the movie for what it actually was. Uh No, and and I know that some people have faulted the ad campaign for the film for making it look like some sexy thriller. Mm-hmm. Um which is not exactly. Um but also it has to be said that that film is just about unclassifiable. I mean yes. most of his films were genre films that all thwarted genre expectations. Um and what, one of the things I love most about Eyes Wide Shut is it's hard to say even what kind of film that is. I mean, what would you call it? Mm. You know? It's not a romance. It's not a thriller. It's not a mystery. Even though, <clears throat> you know, it is romantic. It's about love anyway. And it's um, mysterious. It's deeply mysterious. But, you know, what is that film? I, I had read the Schnitzler novella that it's based on before I saw it because mm-hmm. I'm a big Kubrick geek. <clears throat> but uh, I'm a little sorry that I have, um, because it follows the the story very closely, and I wish I hadn't known what was coming. But even even if you do, it remains a very mysterious film, full of these odd episodes and echoes. Um, and I sort of love films that keep you off balance that way. Usually when you go to see a film, you know what the genre is, and there's a certain built-in contract to that genre, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. You know pretty much what to expect. Um, and films that um, violate that contract are really memorable. Um, maybe you would know this. I was just trying to remember with a friend of mine today. There was a, uh, I believe it's a Chinese film about World War II that came out within the last decade. And throughout most of it appears to be a comedy but it ends in a ghastly and unexpected atrocity. Hmm. And because you've been set up to believe it as a comedy, um, it's all the more affecting than if, say, you went to see a film like Schindler's List, which you know going in is about an atrocity. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I just saw Psycho again on Halloween Day this year, and one of the things that must have... I mean, this is hard to remember because we all know Psycho so well by now, and we know what to expect from it, but audiences seeing it for the first time... Um, must have been stunned by it because for the first 40 minutes of the film it's a thriller, it's a noir Um, and all the characters in it act as if they are in a noir Mm -hmm. like everyone assumes she's run off with that money to be with her lover and then they think oh that detective probably found out about it and he made off with the money himself they're imputing all these noirish motives to people but it's not a noir at all, it's a horror film and what happens in it is only explicable in terms of horror, in terms of the irrational and madness. You know, it doesn't operate by the rules of a crime film at all. Yeah. We've done a couple of shows on Psycho, and, and I've always said that that's the one f- film premiere experience I wish I could have had. I wish sure. I could have been in that audience. Wouldn't it be oh. amazing? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I don't want to ruin this film for anybody who's listening and hasn't seen it, but Kiss Me Deadly is sort of the same way. Hmm. I mean, it's a noir, and the protagonist 
believes himself to be in a noir, a crime film or a detective film, and he acts like a detective in a noir. And everyone's constantly telling him, listen, you, you're in over your head, you don't know what you're doing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, and keeps slapping people around. And it turns out he doesn't know what he's in at all. It's a science fiction film. Hmm. <laughs> it's, a new, it's a new genre and it's a new era. You know, it's sort of the cusp of the 50s. Um, and this this role he's playing is obsolete. Um, and Eyes Wide Shut is sort of like that, except you go into it without any clear expectation of what genre it is. Um, I mean, it's a very inexplicable film. I mean, I find it to be the most mysterious of all Kubrick's films. I mean, what's that film about? You know, in my in my essay, I said, well, that's a film about money and power, um, which it is. But of course, I was uh, overstating my thesis for rhetorical effect. It's not just about that. It's obviously also a domestic drama, in the same way that The Shining is, you know, a political film about the extermination of the American Indians. But it's also an Oedipal nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're bottomless films. You know, I, I could watch them. <laughs> an infinite number of times, and in some cases I, I nearly have. Um, and to actually, to, to link him to David Foster Wallace again, you often find critics calling Wallace cold and intellectual, and especially his book of short stories, um, brief interviews of hideous men. Lots of reviewers were just repelled by the characters in that book, somehow conflating those characters with you know, authorial approval. And because he doesn't give you the, the imprimatur of, you know, authorial disapproval, like you were saying, Kubrick doesn't disapprove of Alex explicitly, doesn't punish him in any dramatic terms. Um, they assume that, that we're meant to identify with those characters, uh, and more than identify with them, but condone them. Um, yeah. But, you know, those those works to me are full of emotion and humanist feeling. Um, but part of their deep, you know, humanist faith is in allowing the audience to draw their own conclusions and feel however they want to about it, mm-hmm. instead of, um, you know, micromanaging your reactions in an authoritarian way, the way so many films try to. How do you think he deals with sexuality in Eyes Wide Shut? How does he use it? Um... Well, it's pretty much a failure as pornography. <laughs> I mean, the, the the scenes of sex in it, with one or two exceptions, are very unsexy. You know, the the female bodies in that film remind me very much of those 18th century interiors. You know, lovely and ornate and cold. Mm-hmm. Um, for my money, the sexiest scene in that film is when that prostitute Domino kisses. Bill on the lips, uh, backlit with his purple light. <clears throat> it's very mm-hmm. um, erotic and weirdly tender, given that they're strangers. Um, about which I have almost nothing more to say. But it's one of those. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really fit into any interpretive scheme of that film. But Domino is one of my favorite. There, there's so many characters in that film who appear briefly and who I love, like uh, the desk clerk, played by. Um, Alan Cumming, yeah. Yes, thank you. He's hilarious. And, and yeah. Domino, who um, is played by an actress who's been in very few other things that I've seen or heard of. 
Vanessa Shaw. Is that who Vanessa played Donna? Shaw, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, I know she's been in other things, but uh, but nothing major. And she's, you know, really funny and warm and human seeming in a way that few other people in that movie are. But yeah. I'm sorry, I'm digressing. Um, yeah, mostly sex is um, a matter of power in that film. I mean, women are literally objectified. I found myself uh, rewatching it last night, thinking of that line by the dude in The Big Lebowski. Jackie Treehorn <laughs> treats objects like women, man. <laughs> um, you know, they're they're often literally masked, like at that orgy. Um, and, uh, you know, they're like very expensive furniture. Yeah. Um, it's a matter of, you know, uh, exploiting and discarding people. Um, sex in that film, you know, except for that moment with Domino and that <clears throat> scene between Bill and Alice the night after they get home from the party, um, is not very sexy at all. And that scene mm-hmm. between them is, I think, pretty erotic, but it's complicated by the fact that they've both had kind of arousing experiences with strangers that night and not mention them to each other. Um, you know, there's all kinds of levels <laughs> to their yeah. lovemaking in that in that moment. And that, that glimpse she gives herself in the mirror at the last moment is um, creepy and self-aware and full of meaning. I want to get your take on this. Um, obviously, people thought that they were walking into... A <clears throat> Uh, a, a sex-fueled uh, film with, you know, the biggest star in the world. He rarely used big stars. I mean, Nicholson comes to mind, uh, obviously. Well, actually, it's easy to forget. Ryan O'Neill was the biggest box office draw of the year when he cast him in Barry Lyndon. Okay. I mean, okay. he's he's appearing on the Sci-Fi Network now, but uh, back then, <laughs> he was a big name. I, mean, yeah. I think he was a canny businessman, and he... Uh, he sought out big stars who were good for the roles. I mean, Malcolm McDowell was not well-known when he cast him in Clockwork Orange, um, but there was no one else who could have played the part. Yeah. Well, someone yeah, well. But I'm sorry, I'm interrupting your question. Right? Well, no, one of, one of the authors that I spoke to actually asked that question of me, why do you think he cast Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman? Uh, especially an odd role for Tom Cruise because we're used to the proactive Tom Cruise, and he's kind of passive. <laughs> it it, it yeah. eyes wide shut. Yeah. Um, what 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 do you think works about that dynamic of having him particularly playing playing that role in the film? I haven't thought that over carefully before, so I'll be saying stupid things off the top of my head by way of <laughs> that's okay. Um, well, first of all, I think Tom Cruise is a really good actor. He he doesn't often have to bother um you know it's not like he has to act in the mission impossible films but he's amazing in magnolia yeah um i think uh kubrick was probably not indifferent to the fact that they were a huge box office draw um he was not indifferent to his films making money (laughs) Mm -hmm. um but also i think it must have been important that they were a married couple in real life Mm -hmm. um I mean, I'm, I'm remembering that he said once that one reason he, he wanted Jack Nicholson to play Jack Torrance is because Jack, because Jack Nicholson was intelligent in real life. And Kubrick, who was uh, 
to borrow a phrase of Robert Stone, the perceptual athlete said that you could see this in Nicholson's eyes, and it was a quality that it was not possible to fake. Hmm. Um, and it's possible that the chemistry of marriage and the history of marriage was something that he felt actors also could not convincingly fake. Um, I think that must have mattered to him. Uh, and, you know, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman described that experience as uh, a difficult one, um, not just because of the grueling shoot, but because of the uh, what they were called upon to explore, um, you know, about jealousy and possessiveness. Yeah. Um, I would not go so far as to imagine that their breakup a couple years later was, <laughs> was causally related <laughs> in a way. Um, but that must have played some part in it. Um, Tom Cruise is not unlike Ryan O'Neill in Barry Lyndon, um, mm -hmm. who is, for much of that film, uh, passive. You know, um, things happen to him. Um, and again, the viewer has to watch in a way that probably few people have the attention and energy and intelligence to watch things. Few people other than Stanley Kubrick, um, in order to intuit what's going on in the depths of those characters. Um, this is parenthetical, but I remember once seeing Barry Lyndon in a theater, and when Barry Lyndon finally hauls off and kidney punches his hateful nephew, the whole audience applauded. <laughs> yeah, um, it's about time. Partly, yeah. partly because that scene is such bravura filmmaking. It's so awesome to see um, guys in 18th century stockings uh, in a kind of pileup. Um, but also because it's the return of the repressed, you know. It's, it's like when Alex is cured at the end of Clockwork Orange. You see this character who's been rendered hatefully passive um, mm -hmm. become gloriously uh, homicidal again, <laughs> um, which Tom Cruise never does in uh, Eyes Wide Shut. No, he's he's the at least at that time. I, I mean, he, he one of the most potent male actors action stars you know and and he's rendered impotent in this film i mean <laughs> yeah. and he's yeah. he's a character who's not really self-aware i mean i think one innate quality of tom cruise's that that portrayal draws on is his arrogance his cockiness which is kind of endearing in or, or at least meant to be endearing in films like Top Gun or Risky Business, um, and I, don't, I have no idea what Tom Cruise is like as a human being, but it's part of his star persona, mm -hmm. yes, that he's full of himself, that he's cocksure, um, and Bill is this way, and that he's very complacent about his um, gorgeous wife, who he doesn't really even look at anymore, and his place in the world, he's always flashing his credentials to impress people, he's a doctor, and all that stuff gets not quite taken away from him, but shaken in the course of the film. That's probably another reason that he's cast. Do you think that... Um, <clears throat> and, 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 I'm sorry, can I, can I say a couple more things? I'm sorry. No, please, please. Here, but there's a lot that I like about his performance in that film. I mean, it's, um, it's not like Nicole Kidman's, which is much more, um, I don't want to say show-offy, but, you know, hers is more the sort of performance people get awards for. You're very conscious of her acting and acting well. His is almost invisible, but there are a couple moments in it that I look forward to fondly every time I watch the film, like in that last scene, uh, not last scene, but that very long scene toward the end of the film in which he and Ziegler 
are sort of circling each other in this elaborate dance around that blood red pool table. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a series of challenges and evasions, um, which appears, by the way, to, to backtrack to what we were talking about earlier, appears to make explicit everything that is mysterious in the film, but in fact it's not clear that that really explains anything. I mean, we don't know if anything said in that scene is true or not. But um, what I was going to say was there's a terrific moment during that scene where Ziegler tells him something that's really difficult to believe, that it's just a coincidence that this girl OD'd the same night she was supposedly going to be sacrificed. Um, and he's sitting there with his hand on his cheek, and he gets up and is slowly walking forward, and his hand kind of adheres to his cheek <laughs> after yes. he stands up and slowly slides off. It's very deft and comedic, almost like something from a Warner Brothers cartoon. 